I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. Today we're reading Ephesians chapters 4, 5, and 6. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, Paul deals with the unity of the body of Christ. Verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with longsuffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come in the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men, and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive." But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Now, before we deal with these verses, we mustn't lose sight of what is at the heart of the discussion that's dominated this letter to the Ephesians, and that's the equal footing of Gentiles within the body of Christ with the Jews. There's no difference between Jewish salvation and Gentile salvation. Paul assures the Ephesian Gentiles that the middle wall of partition has indeed been broken down between the two, and he mentioned that and deals with that in chapter 2. Then in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6, Paul unveils to them the mystery that has been revealed to him. And here it is, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs, and of the same body, and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. So the discussion in Ephesians is designed to show that there is no inferiority with Gentile salvation. Saved Gentiles are equal in the body of Christ with saved Jews. This chapter begins with Paul's exhortation to the Ephesians after he's just revealed his prayer for them in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. Based upon that prayer, Paul gives them these words of encouragement in verses 1 through 3. There's a Greek word that gets a lot of usage in verse 1, and that word is kaleo. That's the verb form translated called. In addition, the noun form 
uh, of the same root, klesis, is translated vocation or simply calling. Interestingly enough, the root is also used in another compound word, parakaleo, in that same verse translated, I beseech. With the Greek prefix para, it means I call alongside or I exhort. So if you're looking for calling, there it is in verse 1. Literally, I call you alongside myself to walk worthy, meaning in an improved manner, to walk worthy of the calling in which you were called. Now, that vocation or calling is that of salvation itself. So as one who has been saved by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, Paul instructs them and us to walk worthy, as in to walk in a fashion that reflects our appreciation for Christ's sacrifice. Again, the emphasis here is to embrace the notion that these Gentile believers are just as called, just as worthy to be part of the body of Christ, as are the Jews. Now, if there's any question about what it means to walk worthy, there's your answer in verses 2 and 3. It says, with all lowliness, meaning humility, with meekness, meaning gentleness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. The King James uh, word long-suffering there and forbearing, they capture the essence of Paul's admonition. The Greek word makrothemia is a compound word meaning to suffer long. And the Greek anekomai means to endure. Literally, Paul is exhorting them to not allow Christian brethren to get on their nerves because they love them. And then he says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. The Holy Spirit is, of course, the bond of peace. And the Holy Spirit maintains unity when believers are led by the Holy Spirit. So to put verses 1 through 3 into perspective, when believers are responsive to the leading of the Holy Spirit, there is unity among them. Verse 1 says, in essence, Live your life like a child of God. On the eve of the crucifixion, Jesus said this to the disciples in John thirteen thirty four and 35, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. The identifier of a believer ought to be the love he demonstrates toward others, especially other believers. Paul clearly states that concept in verses 1 and 2, and he puts the cap on it in verse 3 when he says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Division, bickering, strife, well, they're all signs of the carnal nature of man at work. Make no mistake about it. When strife and friction exist in a local church body, that's the working of evil forces, not the working of the Holy Spirit. Speaking of unity among the believers, Jew and Gentile, Paul develops this one theme in verses 4 through 6. One body, that of course being the body of Christ, one spirit, that being the Holy Spirit, one hope of your calling, of course, Jesus Christ, one Lord, again, Jesus Christ, one faith, that means salvation by grace through Jesus Christ for Jews and Gentiles alike, one baptism. Now, this is probably referring to the mode of baptism here. We'll say more about that in a few moments. And then finally, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. In other words, there's nothing different about the faith with regard to Jews and Gentiles. There is only one faith for all of us. 
for that reason, fragmentation in the form of division within the body of believers, well, that has no rightful place. Jews and Gentiles must all embrace the same spiritual components of our faith as one body of Christ. That's the essence of these three verses. But one clarification should be made regarding the one baptism. Water baptism is a picture. It's a token representing the change that's taken place in a believer at salvation. The actual baptism that makes that change is that of the Holy Spirit. There could be no question that baptism by the Holy Spirit, the experience of all believers at salvation, is the miracle of God that takes place at salvation and actually makes salvation possible. However, in talking about Jewish versus Gentile salvation, Paul in this verse is probably referring to water baptism here to point out that both Jews and Gentiles are baptized the exact same way. There's just one baptism for us all. In another passage where Paul is addressing unity among believers, he said this in 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen: For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, or whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one Spirit. Now that we've established that we are all one in Christ, we see the diversity of the ministry of Christ working in each believer by the Holy Spirit there in verse 7, where here's what he says, But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. However, we'll hold that thought for three verses, and we'll continue developing it down in verse 11. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 8 through 10, Paul takes a little doctrinal detour when he quotes Psalm 68.18 regarding the whereabouts of Christ between the crucifixion and the resurrection. He actually quotes from this psalm to continue his thought regarding his mention of the gift of Christ in verse 7, also referenced by the psalmist. However, while on the subject, Paul develops an interesting, already fulfilled prophecy concerning the captives that are referenced in that psalm. Thus, this passage, along with several others in the New Testament, gives us a fairly complete account regarding the home of the Old Testament saints before and after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For a more complete picture of the implications of this passage and others, you may want to take a look at the, uh, at the article that I've uh, included on the written notes of BibleTrack.org for today entitled Paradise Relocated. It deals directly with uh, these three verses, Ephesians 4, 8 through 10, and also talks uh, some about the whereabouts of Jesus for those three days between the crucifixion and the resurrection. It's an interesting article, and you perhaps should take a look at it. In these verses, these 8 through 10 verses in Ephesians chapter 4, we see the descent and ascension after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Now remember, verse 11 continues the same thought introduced in verse 7 before we took a little parenthetical detour on the gift of Christ. Verse 11 says, And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. The usage of a different Greek conjunction in that verse to connect pastors and teachers, it's the Greek chi instead of de, it would appear to combine them into one pastor-teacher office. I've written uh, another article on the... Uh, roles of pastor, bishop, and elder, and what those words mean, and and uh, how those offices function in the scripture. And there's a link here in the written notes of BibleTrack.org, or you can go to the topic section 
on the main page of BibleTrack.org and read that article. The gifted people who fulfill specific offices in verse 11 are those whom Christ has enabled to minister to the body of Christ at large since the cross to our present. While the Greek word apostolos is transliterated into our English word apostle, and actually before the ministry of Christ, it simply, uh, it simply meant messenger. So that word is used here, and I'm relatively certain that the apostles of this verse is a specific reference to the twelve apostles of Jesus himself, personally chosen by him. Now, by the way, there's another article that you may find interesting, and it's regarding the successor to Judas in Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. You may want to click here and go over and take a look at the notes on Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. If you take a look at the 81 occurrences of the Greek word apostolos in the New Testament, it's near impossible to conclude that Paul intends his reference here to apostles to be extended past the apostles pointed by Jesus Christ himself. Of course, Paul includes himself in the group based upon his discussion regarding this matter in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Incidentally, verse 11 is the only place in the New Testament where the Greek word poimain is translated pastor. In every other instance, the same word is translated shepherd, and that's with every translation that I've taken a look at. Before the completion of our canon of Scripture that we now know as the Bible, prophets facilitated the process of delivering God's Word to God's people. As a matter of fact, the entire text of Scripture was manifested originally through prophets. Prophets are those people who receive direct revelation from God, the equivalent of Scripture. Now, many wonder if prophets still exist today. I'll make two points to shed light on that question. First, God can manifest himself however he pleases, and he's chosen to do so through the prophets in the past. But second of all, Moses was very specific in his warning. The uh, Hebrews, back in Deuteronomy, chapter 18, verses 15 to 22, he was very specific in warning them regarding the performance standards for future prophets. I believe it's appropriate to apply this test, the one you find in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 to 22. Appropriate to apply this test to anyone who proclaims himself to be a prophet. Based upon this criteria, I've never personally met someone rising to that level of accuracy. We do know, of course, that God will send two prophets in Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 through 14, and that's during the tribulation period. What about the doctrinal position held by many that the gift of prophecy has been discontinued? Now, if you want to see a complete discussion on that, check my notes on 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 8 through 13. Well, based upon this, I'm inclined to adopt the position that the original twelve apostles and the first century prophets who ministered to the body of Christ at large comprise the grand total of apostles and prophets to the body of Christ seen in this passage. After all, we are members of the same body of Christ as the first century church. We benefit from their gifts as well as those early believers through the word of God left by them. Ministering to the body of Christ at large today are the offices of evangelists and, of course, pastors, teachers. Based upon the commentary on Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26, if you took a look at that, 
That's regarding apostles and the study of the gift of prophecy from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 8 through 13. If you took a look at that, and that's regarding prophets, then I'm comfortable with the notion that the apostles and the prophets, uh, that their work in the body of Christ has been completed. The purpose statement for the New Testament church is found in verse 12. What's the job of the local church? Well, answer, verse 12. For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Though translated as a verb, perfecting there comes from a Greek noun, katartismos, which means fully qualified. The Greek noun for ministry there is diakonia, which means serving. The Greek word for edifying is also a Greek noun, which means building. It's important to realize that the mission of the local church is for the equipping of believers, for service and for building up the body of Christ. When believers are focused on the goals of verse 12, unity comes as a natural process. So when the leaders of verse 11 focus their efforts on the mission of verse 12, what do you get for results? Well, there are the results in verse 13. It says, Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, there's the unity that we started with in verse 3, which comes when believers measure up to the perfect man of verse 13. Now, don't panic. The word perfect there comes from the Greek word teleos and means complete or mature. The maturing process is gaining the knowledge of the Son of God. Believers must be equipped with God's Word to realize this in their lives. Let's contrast maturity in this passage to the concept of immaturity seen in children in verse 14. Easily swayed and easily deceived. And that's bad. Spiritually mature believers are the grown-ups within the body of Christ. We see that in verses 15 and 16. Jesus is the head and believers fit together with every part working effectively and growing in love. In our next passage of Scripture, beginning with verse 17 down through verse 32, we see what are the symptoms of a Spirit-led life. Verse 17, This I say therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over into lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But ye have not so learned Christ, if so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversations the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and sin not, let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands a thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, 
even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. So, how does a spirit-led believer conduct himself? Well, first of all, unlike those who've rejected Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, we see the description of their unacceptable conduct in verses 17 to 22. Notice the detailed description Paul gives of unregenerate Gentiles. In verse 17, he says, they are people who are thinking without content, and when he says vanity of their mind. Verse 18, having the understanding darkened, also in verse 18, being alienated from the life of God through ignorance. In verse 18, blinded hearts. In verse 19, past feeling, meaning to lose the capacity to feel shame or embarrassment. In verse 20, given themselves over into lasciviousness. The Greek word there means lacking any moral restraint. And verse 20, this lack of moral restraint results in all uncleanness with greediness. Now, here's an important concept. These Gentiles, about whom Paul is speaking, had no basis of morality. Subsequently, their standards of right and wrong were arbitrary. Such is the case today for those who reject the counsel of God. No moral basis. Paul addressed this same issue in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 32. As we see societies distancing themselves from God's word, keep this in mind. When they reject God's word, they lose their fundamental foundation for right and wrong. At that point, anything goes. Now, if you know the truth, verse 21, Paul commands in verse 22 to put off that conduct of the old man and put on the conduct of the new man in the next two verses. Verses 23 and 24 talking about being renewed in the spirit of your mind. That's a reference to being led by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's leading can only be experienced when one is filled by the Spirit, which is a natural result of practicing good spiritual hygiene. What is good spiritual hygiene, you ask? Well, just like the physical body needs physical nourishment and sound practices of hygiene, so the spiritual man also, the one who resides within all believers, he needs the same kind of nourishment, spiritual nourishment. Now, here are the practices that I call good spiritual hygiene. I believe that reading your Bible every day is an essential to good spiritual hygiene. Praying every day, fellowshipping with believers on a regular basis, that really means going to church. Yeah, you can be a Christian without going to church, but it just seems like Christians hang out at church, and that's the fellowship other believers need, fellowship with other believers. And then lastly, sharing your faith means involved in some aspect of Christian ministry that's meeting the needs of other people. I'm convinced that these daily practices are essential for victorious Christian living. Understanding the role of the Holy Spirit in this process is vital. I've written an article entitled Good Spiritual Health, which goes in depth on this concept. You might want to take a look at it. There's a link here, or you can go to the, the main page of BibleTrack.org and look it up there. When we exercise these concepts of good spiritual hygiene, when we exercise them effectively, then we're putting on the new man of verse 24. The new man is the Holy Spirit within us, and he's strengthened when we exercise good spiritual hygiene. And these are sound activities that make the Holy Spirit's influence in your life strong. When the strength of the Holy Spirit is leading you, the admonitions of verses 25 to 32, well, they just fall into place naturally. 
lying in verse 25, an angry disposition in verse 26, entertaining thoughts that would please the devil in verse 27, thievery in verse 28, and unwholesome or harmful communication. Well, those are just a few of the negatives that were we to engage would grieve the Holy Spirit as we see in verse 30. But Paul's not done as we see in verse 31. He goes on to say, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Let's be clear here. The Holy Spirit's leadership delivers believers from these attitudes and actions. Oops, let's back up for a moment and look at verse 30 again. It says, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, Now he which establisheth us with you in Christ, and hath anointed us as God, who hath also sealed us, and given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. These two passages show us that the Holy Spirit seals our salvation, and serves as the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. In other words, the ministry of the Holy Spirit working in every believer is God's earnest payment on each of us. That's the literal assurance that we are the children of God, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, and on our way to heaven. A concept he also mentions in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5, when he says this, Now he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing is God, who also hath given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. But wait, there's more. Paul also writes in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, "...in whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise." Well, Paul's clear on this doctrinal issue of the Holy Spirit. God gives each believer the Holy Spirit as a seal to validate and eternally protect the salvation of that believer. Now, by the way, I've written an article entitled The Earnest of the Spirit, which deals with uh, with uh, where this actually comes from, this term, and the importance of it. And so you may want to take a look at that. It's on the written notes of BibleTrack.org for today, or it's under the topic section of BibleTrack.org on the main page. The, uh, the Holy Spirit, by the way, begins at salvation, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life, we see in 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen, for by one spirit are we all baptized into one body. Paul tells the Romans that each believer is in possession of the Holy Spirit when he says in Romans 8, 9, Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he's none of his. So, so here's the bottom line. No one gets saved without the empowerment and indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And it is that same Holy Spirit which safeguards our salvation afterward. Now for the capper in verse 32. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. The Greek verb there for forgiving and forgiven, it's less frequently used as a word for the concept of forgiveness. The word there is charizomai, which literally means to freely give. Now that's important. That's a little more than just wiping the slate clean, so to speak. It means that we freely give to one another as families do. As a matter of fact, there's that unity we started out with beginning in this chapter in verse 3. And then we find in verse 5 the admonition to walk in love. The first 14 verses of chapter 5, verse 1. 
Be therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know that no whoremonger nor unclean person nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words." For because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not ye therefore partakers with them. For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light, for whatsoever doth make manifest is light. Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. In these verses, Paul tells the Ephesians to imitate godly actions, the actions in verses 1 and 2, actions that, by the way, emulate God's love. In verse 2, Paul admonishes, walk in love. What does that mean? Well, first of all, the Greek noun for love used here is agape, and it's an indicator of sacrificial love. Well, as a matter of fact, there's the very definition of the word agape right there in that verse, when Paul continues and says this, As Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God. That's it, agape equals love, equals a willingness to sacrifice. The word for love that means a natural affection, which is philia, it's not used here. The word for sacrificial love, agape, that's the word that's used. Verses 3 through 12 warn us to avoid those who are rejectors of God, those who openly partake in immorality in defiance to the laws of God. There's some very strong words here. Look at verses 3 through 5 again. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know, that no whoremonger nor unclean person nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ." As a matter of fact, a similar list is given in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 to 21. Listen to those verses. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I've also told you in time past, that they would do such things, shall not inherit the kingdom of God. It's critical to understand that these verses describe those who practice this lifestyle. It's not talking about believers. The scripture plainly teaches that God chastises Christians who defy his leadership. Well, look at what he says. Paul, I believe, wrote Hebrews. Look at what he says in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 6 through 8. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Lord chasteneth not? 
But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. If you wonder what form this chastisement takes, then look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 29 to 32. Here's what we read there. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. So here's the bottom line. God just does not permit believers to defy him by practicing the conduct of Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, and Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 to 21. That disobedient believer will experience the chastisement of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 6 through 8, as depicted in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 29 to 32, even to the point of being removed by God from this life through death, we see that in 1 Corinthians 11.30. Therefore, when you see someone practicing this corrupt lifestyle without the intervening hand of God, you can scripturally assume that no born-again experience was ever realized by that person. If you'd like more information on that statement, then look at the notes that I've written on 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 to 34. I feel compelled to make a distinction here. There are those who are convinced that any sign of despicable conduct in professing believers is a certain indicator of a spiritually lost condition. If you read 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and Hebrews chapter 12 closely, here's what you'll see you'll see that these Christians were experiencing chastisement for their sins, but were, in fact, saved people. Paul's very clear about the consequences of practicing the conduct that we find in verses 3-5 through when he says this in verse 6, "...let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience." Now, moreover... Believers should not involve themselves with these people in verse 7. It's a lifestyle that's based in darkness, not the light of Jesus Christ, we see in verse 8. Verses 9 and 10 tell us that the fruit of the Spirit provides believers with a lifestyle that is pleasing to God. So, how do we act toward those who are involved in this unacceptable level of conduct? Well, notice what it says in verse 11. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. In verse 12, he says that we should even be careful how we talk about their reprehensible conduct. Paul expresses it like this in 1 Corinthians 5.11. He says, But now I have written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an adulterer or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner with such an one know not to eat. Believers are to shame and avoid those so-called believers who flaunt their rebellious conduct. Now, here's a good lesson on light in verse 13. It reveals, light reveals. God's word is compared to light in Psalm 119.105, when there it says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Perhaps Paul is referring to Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1 and verse 14, where there he encourages believers to walk in the light of Christ rather than following the works of darkness. Those are works that are shameful and godless. Technically speaking, the verb translated, he saith in verse 14,
can be translated he, she, or it says. There's no gender specificity there. Perhaps Paul is referring to a contemporary poem or a saying or a song with this quotation which characterizes the victory that's ours as a result of the resurrection. Some have suggested that it may have been a saying or song used on the occasion of water baptism ceremonies. We really have no way of knowing for certain. Then we find an admonition in verses 15 to 21 to make good use of your time. Verse 15. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Wherefore be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ." submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Verses 15 to 21 speak of making the best use of our time and investing it in one another for spiritual strength. Believers are encouraged in verse 15 to walk circumspectly, meaning to walk accurately. One who is a fool, that comes from the Greek word asaphos, means without wisdom. That person who is a fool lives recklessly. A believer who's interested in pleasing God is careful with his personal testimony before the world, and he uses his time wisely, as we see in verse 16. As a matter of fact, that's the essence of verse 17, which says, Wherefore be not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. The Greek adjective there translated unwise really means not employing one's understanding. Of the eleven times that word is used in the New Testament, it's translated as fool or foolish in every instance except right here. Here it's used in the context of a person who knows God's will but disregards it, which leads us to the analogy of verse 18 regarding foolish conduct, which says, And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. That's an amusing and to-the-point message. In other words, just as a drunkard's conduct is controlled by his excessive drink, so should a believer be equally controlled by the power of the Holy Spirit's influence within him. Hopefully you also see in that verse Paul's admonition to avoid drunkenness. The result of Holy Spirit-led conduct is found in verses 19 to 21. Pleasant interaction between believers, as we see in verse 19. Thankfulness to God in verse 20 and submission to one another, as in selflessness rather than selfishness in verse 21. That word submitting there comes from the Greek verb hupatasso. It's a compound word, hupo, means under, and tasso means to arrange or place. Therefore, the idea of submission is to place or arrange one under another. It indicates a chain of command. So after introducing the concept of submission in verse 21, Paul then deals with three areas of submission, and those three areas are husbands and wives in verses 22 to 33 of this chapter, and then on into chapter 6, parent-children relations in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 6, and then master-slaves in chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. So that brings us then to the husband-wife relationship, the submission part that Paul introduced in chapter 5, verses 22 to 33. Verse 22, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. 
For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. In chapter 5, Paul's dealing with Christian conduct. These verses deal with the marriage relationship in comparison to the relationship Christ has with the body of believers known as the church. The Greek word for love here is agapao. It's a verb form. It's the verb form of the noun for love, agape. That particular word means sacrifice. When Paul commands men to love their wives in verse 25, he's commanding them to make sacrifices for their wives. When folks make sacrifices for one another, then a natural affection, the natural affection for love is the Greek word philia, and that's the result when sacrifices are made on behalf of one. So sacrifice results in natural affection. The ultimate amount of sacrifice is illustrated by Christ's willingness to give his own life for the salvation of believers. We saw that in verse 2. Incidentally, that concept rebuilds broken marriages. If a troubled couple will simply return to the practice of sacrificing, the practice that characterized the early days of their marriage and courtship, then the natural affection for one another will actually be rekindled. In the process of talking about relationships based upon love, we find a little doctrine of the church itself sprinkled into verses 26 and 27 where there he says that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So here it is. God's word sets apart, sanctifies, and cleanses believers so as to provide holy believers to himself at the rapture, which, by the way, is seen in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13-18. through 18. However, the emphasis of this passage is that the relationship of the husband to the wife ought to be the same as the relationship of Jesus Christ to the church, which is a thought continued in verse 28. Well, however, we're not finished with the husband-wife relationship compared to Christ and the church in that analogy. It continues on. Verses 28 to 30 again emphasizes that the husbands ought to be willing to offer the same level of sacrifice toward their wives as Christ did for the church, putting the welfare of their wives even before their own interest, just as Christ did for the church. If there's any confusion about the recipients of this sacrifice, well, that's cleared up in verse 30. It's us. We're the recipients, believers. To reinforce his one flesh assertion of verse 29, 
Paul in verse 31 quotes Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 which says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. He notes that the Christ-Church relationship is a mystery. A mystery, the Greek word mysterion, means in the New Testament rendering that which cannot be known naturally. In a general sense, the word means that which was previously hidden. As a matter of fact, you're hearing it right here in this passage for the first time. Previously unknown, Paul declares right here that the church is the bride of Christ. Now, here's a warning. If you're way into political correctness, you're going to find the next few uh, words that I say right here somewhat offensive. So, here it is. We finally get back to the actual lesson of the husband's sacrifice for his wife and the wife's submission to her husband here in verse 33, where it said that she should reverence him. <laughs> I told you you might find that offensive. Well, now, this is fascinating. The Greek verb used here for reverence is phobeo. It's used 93 times in the New Testament. It's really only translated reverence in this verse. The other 92 times it's translated either fear or afraid. As a matter of fact, the noun form of the word, phobos, it's used another 47 times and translated fear or afraid each of those times except two, where there it's translated terror. Obviously, nobody wants to go there in any great detail. Well, here's the formal definition of the word from the respected Greek-English dictionary, luinida. They say it's this, to have such an awe or respect for a person as to involve a measure of fear. The phrase fear of God or fear God is a typical Old and New Testament indicator of one's proper relationship toward God. Paul chose those words to describe the proper attitude of a wife toward her husband. Peter also weighs in on this husband-wife relationship in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1-7, through 7, where there he declares in verse 6, "...even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well, and are not afraid with any amazement." As I frequently say, I don't make the news, I just report it. And that brings us to chapter 6, where Paul deals with the relationship of children with parents. By the way, these four verses flow from chapter 5, verse 21, where Paul introduces the concept of submission. Verse 1, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee that thou mayest live long on the earth. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Well, now it's time to discuss the proper submissive relationship of children to the parents. Verse 2 is most interesting. It makes reference to Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, when it says there, Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Now, Paul points out, that this is the first commandment in the list of ten in Exodus chapter 20 that's actually linked to a promise, and that promise is long life. Then Paul gives a reciprocal concept in this relationship, and here it is, that the father shouldn't provoke his children to wrath, a point he also makes in Colossians chapter 3 verse 21, where there he offers the actual reasoning behind the admonition, and here it is, fathers provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. 
And then we come to the slave relationship, again, coming out of the submissive admonition of chapter 5, verse 21, in verses 5 through 9. Verse 5, Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and singleness of your heart, as unto Christ. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will doing service, as to the Lord and not to men. Knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he is be bond or free. And ye masters, do the same things unto them, forbearing threatening. Knowing that your master also is in heaven, neither is their respect of persons with him. Slavery during the first century was a legal reality and, and had been for centuries in the Roman Empire and the centuries before in the other empires that preceded it. These slaves under Roman rule were not entire races, but rather they were certain people from within each race who were in bondage as slaves. So how might one end up being a slave during that era? Well, these are derived from extra-biblical historical documents, but here are a few ways. If you were born to a slave, you were born a slave and remained such unless your master gave you your freedom. Promiscuity was rampant during that era, and because of that, it was common that unwanted babies would be left out on the side of the road to suffer death by exposure, especially girls. Slave traders would harvest these unwanted babies and then hire someone to raise them until they could be sold as slaves. Even though most of these babies were unwanted females, they would be raised to become productive in supplying male and female slaves to their owners. It's also true that a debtor could lose his freedom and be forced into slavery as a result. Additionally, sometimes slaves were formerly prisoners of war. However, the first two scenarios that I mentioned are probably the primary sources for the greatest number of slaves in Roman society during that era. So, Paul deals with the proper relationship between slaves and their owners. I mean, he had no power to change laws governing slavery, so he simply dealt in this chapter with how slaves should properly respond to their masters and how masters should relate to their slaves. Now, some have questioned why Paul didn't just condemn slavery altogether in this passage. Well, keep in mind two issues at hand here. First, when raised as a slave from birth, Roman society would have been economically intolerant of one who had acquired his freedom in most circumstances. This was the lifestyle to which they were accustomed. The security of a malevolent slave owner was preferred by many over freedom. Second of all, Paul's ministry was not one of government reform. His was a ministry of reconciliation to God. Here was a man writing from prison actually enduring his own version of false imprisonment. So understand that these verses represent Paul's instructions to believers who were slaves and to their slave owners. Then we find in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, the battle, the battle we're in, and the armor that God provides. Verse 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong of the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness. 
and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. And for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. These verses give us the understanding of our battle against the forces of Satan. For believers who don't realize they're in a battle, it's no wonder they're losing. Look, it's a war. Paul uses three different Greek words in verse 10 for strong when he says, Be strong of the Lord and of the power of His might. Here are those three words. The word strong comes from the Greek word endunamao, which means empowered. It's a Greek passive verb form, which means that the power is transferred to us. The word power in that verse comes from the Greek word kratos. It's a noun meaning power. And then finally, the word might there actually comes from the Greek word a noun, eskous. It means, uh, it means strength or might. There's nothing like creative redundancy if you want to make a point. In other words, uh, that's what he does here in verse 10. Believers are empowered by the Holy Spirit with the full force of God's strength to fight the battle before us. It's a great promise. Well, how's that take place? Well, verse 11 instructs us to tap into the power, into this particular power, by putting on the whole armor of God. That supernatural armor is detailed in verses 13 through 17. The armor must be supernatural because of the enemy, as depicted here in verse 11, when it calls him the devil. That's the enemy. The Greek noun for wiles there is methodia, which means trickery or deceit. Actually, our English word method is derived from that Greek word methodium. As you can see, this is no ordinary battle, but it gets worse. Verse 12 shows us the formidable allies of the devil himself when it says this, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Whoa, that's, that's heavy. Since Paul went into great detail to describe our enemy, well, let's give some attention to each of these enemies that we find in verse 12. The principalities there comes from the Greek word arche, which means rulers. Powers comes from the Greek word exousia, which means authorities. The plural form is used there. The rulers of the darkness of this world or literally world rulers of the darkness of this age. That Greek word kosmokrator means world ruler. World here comes from the Greek word ion, which usually is translated age. And then finally we see spiritual wickedness in high places or literally meaning spiritual wickedness in the heavenlies. High places, that word, that phrase comes from the Greek eparanios. And that word is usually translated heavenly. It should be pointed out that Jesus himself referred to Satan as the prince of this world in John chapter 12, verse 31. Paul refers to Satan as the god of this world in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. So we see here that Satan has comprised a formidable foe, comprised of rulers, authorities, and world rulers led by himself. 
His list seems to go from least to greatest, and it only demonstrates that Paul seems to be saying that Satan has organized all this world's authority, and he's done that to combat believers. Did you realize we had so many enemies? I'm afraid most believers really don't. They're still trying to win favor somewhere along the way in that list. Remember the words of Jesus in John chapter 15, verses 18 and 19. Here's what he said. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. But then we come to the tools of our warfare in verses 13 through 17. Now here's the problem as I see it. Many, well, maybe most, believers, they don't realize that they're in a battle in the first place. Let me assure you, Satan does know. God has given us, though, the tools of warfare, and we must exercise those tools. So, just for clarity, let's list those items of armor possessed by each believer. We see that our loins are girt about with truth. That's the Word of God. We see that we have on the breastplate of righteousness. That's the righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ as Savior. Now, incidentally, I have more detail in the written notes of BibleTrack.org with the Greek words that represent these terms. But if you're interested in more detail, then look at the notes. And then it says, Your feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. That means there's an action item conveying the gospel message. Then we find the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Uh, the faith of Christ is seen in Galatians chapter 2.16 as the combat for the enemies of God. Then we find the helmet of salvation, which means security in Christ. Then finally we find the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and of course that's the Bible. Believers, there's your weapon list. These are the weapons of our warfare. Therefore, let's get into battle. And then finally, we have the close to the book of Ephesians in verses 21 through 24. Verse 21. But that ye also may know my affairs and how I do, Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, shall make known to you all things, whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose, that ye might know our affairs and that he might comfort your hearts. Peace be to the brethren, and love with faith, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. The Tychicus mentioned in verse 21 was one of the disciples that accompanied Paul on a portion of his third missionary journey. He appears in Acts chapter 20, verse 4. In this passage, he's to travel to Ephesus as a messenger of Paul. Peace and grace are extended to, notice, them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Paul often extends grace and peace in his letters, but here he's careful to know that these are intended for those who have a sincere relationship with Jesus Christ. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walton.